such an interesting background coming from like a large company and the Kubernetes um, launch story. So I thought we would start there and then move into Heptio just because it's more yeah, chronological. Yeah. So I'd love to understand like going back to, and maybe this will get into some of your background too, but going back to the decision to open source Kubernetes and kind of the founding story there, why it was decided to go open source and, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, so like I was one of the founders of Kubernetes, there were three of us and uh, previous to that, uh, we had started Google Compute Engine. And, you know, from just, a, you know, not even thinking about open source, part of our goal there was how do we, you know, like how do you enter a mature market, right? So like, you know, at this point, Google was very much an underdog compared to the likes of, of AWS. And, you know, we definitely felt having a VM service and, you know, all the sort of basics of cloud was necessary, but not sufficient. And so what is the thing that would get us to the next step? And along the way, you know, we had a different way of developing software inside of Google based on containerization over 10 years. And like, you know, Google was actually did a lot of the work to get C groups technology into the kernel, into the Linux kernel. And so Kubernetes was a way to actually sort of, you know, in some ways really shake the snow globe to reset the way people think, thought about deploying and managing applications in a way that was really going to be you know, uh, help to, to, to sort of reset and level the playing field so that we had something that we could compete upon. Um, and this was happening at the same time that, you know, Docker was just getting going. And so there was, um, you know, at that point, Docker was very much focused on sort of a single node experience. And we understood mm -hmm. the power of viewing, you know, things as a cluster through, through, uh, through the experience with Borg. And so we're like, hey, let's start a project to go ahead and do that. And then the next decision was, how do we go about doing that? And, you know, the feeling at the time was that, you know, if we just came out with yet another cloud service that was only available on GCP, nobody was going to give a crap, right? I mean, it's like when you're like a small person doing something new and you're trying to sort of disrupt in that level, the value there was in the disruption, not in terms of, of, of the, the product at the time. And so that really greased the skids in terms of, of going open source with Kubernetes, because our goal there was to really try and sort of like break people away from the, the, the view that VMs were the, the, the unit of deployment into something different that really gave us a lot of opportunity to compete. Joe, I'd love to understand. So you release it open source. What was the expectation versus the reality? Like what was the expected reception versus how fast it, it just got adopted? I think, you know, we were all kind of blown away by it, to be honest. I think, you know, when you do things like this, you know, you have this feeling of like, hey, this could be huge. But, you know, you have that feeling every other week when you're like in the thick of it and when you're trying to do new things. And so it was, I think we were all surprised when, you know, we started seeing traction, we started seeing people get involved. And, and, you know, and part of this is that I think when you, when you release open source, especially when you want to build a great contributor community, you need to release it early enough in an raw enough form that people feel like they can get involved and influence the direction. And I think a big part of open source is that your communities, whether we're talking user community or, or contributing community, they feel a sense of ownership. I mean, this is like all good brands, right? People, when they buy Nike or Apple products or you know whatever their car brand is, they feel a sense of, of ownership over that brand. It becomes part of their identity. And I think the same thing happens with open source. And so engaging with people early is a critical piece of that puzzle of creating that sense of ownership that starts the flywheels that start communities building. Uh, but we were still blown away. I don't think any of us expected Kubernetes to take the trajectory that it did. 
And, um, and I think people inside of Google were, were really surprised also. I think, you know, to some degree, you know, before we released it, there was a certain amount of like, yeah, I don't quite get this thing. Let's see what happens. And then afterwards, it was clear that something was happening there. And, uh, and we definitely were, were, you know, changing things up and shaking that snow globe just like we wanted to. And I think a key part of that was, you know, beyond, you know, releasing it early, it was also finding some um, partners to actually go in with us out the gate. So like for us, early on, we partner with Red Hat um, and they were involved super early. And that I think also helped to actually seed the effort as something that was more than just a single company putting something out there. But like we truly wanted it to be uh, an open community from the get-go. And I think putting some initial down payments there made a, made a big difference. I'm curious how you navigate from an open source project, because we're talking Kubernetes was such a, a big sort of instrumental project for everyone. The whole IT space was truly shaken by, by this project overall. Uh, and you've probably seen the amazing growth yourself and Google, right? And then at the point you really started to uh, start a company, I'm sure there's lots of lots of conversations in between, lots and lots of considerations and probably difficulties, right? Uh, We'll have to learn more of how much you can share about like what was the hard parts of starting a company at that time at Google, right? I mean, so I, um, you know, a little bit after we went public with Kubernetes, I was honestly a little burned out. And so I, you know, took a leave from, from Google and was having so much fun goofing off and still staying, like this was part of the fun of open sources. I could still keep, you know, involved to some degree, but, you know, spending time with the family and, and really decompressing. And then, you know, three months in, my leave was up and I'm like, hey, I'm having fun. Can we keep doing this? And Google's like, no. And so I'm like, all right, I quit. And so I left Google without much of a, a plan in terms of what I was going to do next. And I wasn't sure that it was going to be around Kubernetes. I think, you know, it was one of those things where I didn't want to, you know, and I think maybe I'm odd in this way, but it's my background of being at large companies. I didn't want to start a startup without an inkling around what the monetization and, you know, and the go-to-market was going to be around it. And so I kind of dragged my feet in terms of, of wanting to start a company. Now, along the way, I did a little bit of consulting around the Kubernetes world. And, I, um, and then I eventually signed on as being an, uh, an entrepreneur in residence with, with Excel. And I did that for about a year. And, uh, uh, and, and Ping, the partner that I was working with there, really wanted me to do a Kubernetes company. But I was like, I don't know if I really wanna do that. But eventually, like, you know, I explored a ton of other ideas. And, you know, and uh, uh, decided that, you know, Kubernetes kept growing and the opportunity kept getting larger and it seemed silly to, to ignore it. Along the way, Craig McLucky, who was one of the other, you know, one of the other co-founders of, of Kubernetes, uh, was ready to, to start Heptio with me. And so that's really like, we're like, hey, this thing is clearly taking off. And we still saw a gap in terms of what does it take to make this thing really work for enterprises? How do we bridge that gap between this cool technology from the future for a lot of folks to something that people could actually, you know, wrap their arms around and use. And that was generally the thesis that we started Heptio with and what we, what we got going with. But, you know, it was just a matter of me being in the right space and, you know, finding the right people and, and uh, getting ready to really, really tackle it. Because, you know, anybody who's done it, a startup is a it's a big commitment and it's a journey and you don't, you don't do those things lightly. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be prepared for that marathon. Yeah. And one of the hardest parts about um, starting a company when you're going to have some sort of open source component is trying to figure out the monetization model because it's so sensitive. 
and you can very easily um, like kibosh one side of the business by trying to grow another. So did you decide on what the monetization model was going to be before you went full like head first into Heptio? Yeah, we had some really good theories in terms of what we wanted to do. And I, I think um, there's a lot of, you know, different ways to look at monetization. But at this point, Kubernetes was in the CNCF. It was a fairly mature product. So it was what it was. And I think, you know, we were looking at it going like, well, you know, we could sell support and do sort of the traditional distribution type of thing. We could, um, you know, do consultancy around it. And there's a lot of folks who've sort of gone down that path. Our view on it was that Kubernetes is the, the, the sort of core to an ecosystem. And there was gonna be a ton of opportunity actually building up and around that ecosystem. So we weren't as interested about selling a distribution uh, as we were about like, well, what are the missing parts, right? If we view Kubernetes as the distributed kernel, there's the user mode on top of that, right? That there's all the things that you need along with Kubernetes to really make this thing work for folks. And so that's really where we focus in some of our early efforts around, uh, uh, around open source projects, things like Sonoboy and, and Arc, which became Valero, uh, were efforts to really fill in those gaps. But then our, our strategy then also was that those are open source projects but we can provide an extra layer of features through SaaS, through commercial offerings, right? And I think that very much of like, how do you create products, projects that have utility by themselves, but there's a lot of opportunity to add enhanced features via SaaS, via, you know, other commercial offerings. And that's the pattern that, you know, I think is still a very, very healthy way to engage honestly with open source communities, be true to them, provide that value, yet also, provide space for you to actually, you know, build on top of that and do more things. Now, along the way, you know, we did do uh, quite a bit of consulting and we had a consulting arm for Heptio. A couple of reasons there were, you know, we all think that we know developers because we're developers, but the truth of the matter is, is that my experience, you know, before, you know, before Heptio, I worked at Google for like 10 years and I worked at Microsoft for seven or eight years. That doesn't really prepare me to really understand what the life of a developer, you know, or an IT professional in a mainstream enterprise is. It's a very different experience. And so a lot of our early consulting efforts was just building those instincts and that feeling of where are the real problems in this space. And so, you know, as long as you're doing customer research, you might as well have somebody pay you for it. And that was kind of a little bit of the, the thinking behind the consultancy. The other big advantage of the consultancy is that, you know, when you're a tiny company, trying to, to attack an enterprise market, you know, it's all about the logo slide, right? Who do you have as customers? You know, because I think people generally, they're like, well, if so-and-so trusts them, then I'm going to trust them also. And if you're doing training, if you're doing consulting, you have a logo that you can put on a slide and then you can parlay that into then selling product, right? And so I think it's a way to actually start to build those relationships and then bootstrap that up into sort of a more traditional enterprise type of sales model. Yeah. And so one thing I feel like Heptio definitely was unique, as you mentioned, right, is that uh, your first products was all open source projects, right? There <laughs> is no visible commercial product that I can remember, or I feel like I remember from Heptio, at least from the outside. Um, uh, and so I feel like there's different trade-offs or, or different styles, right, where you can actually create products that are closed source, right? Kubernetes can still be open source, but actually have tools and utilities, or then you can build like a larger platform that's complete closed source. 
But instead, it sounds like you guys started from a default open source for, for the utilities and tools that you build and then consider what is even commercially closed source beyond that. Uh, what was that thought process? Like why is open source everything for every tool you write? Well, I think, you know, to some degree, um, you know, we look at other companies built out of more mature open source uh, projects. And there are times where, you know, they can create a lot of resentment in the community because you see a lot of folks putting a lot of time. Some company comes in and says, thank you for all that hard work. We're now going to go sell it and reap all the profits. And so, you know, there was a certain amount of like, you know, we wanted to be good citizens in open source, which means that we wanted to give, you know, more than we got, right? We wanted to, to be part of contributing, even though we were small, we wanted to continue to put stuff out there. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, this is the currency, like, you know, when something's open source, when something is, is free, it's so much easier for folks to, to grab it and feel it and, and, and touch it and really figure out what it is. And especially when you're doing stuff that's, you know, at the at the beginning of the adoption curve, focused at sort of a DevOps type of, you know, or developer type of, of persona, you really need something that folks can build trust in quickly by actually dealing with, right? And I think that, you know, sending in some some salesperson to like, you know, drown people with PowerPoint is just not going to be effective there. Now, our strategy from the get-go though was that, you know, the 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 open source is really the, the, the start, it's the foundation, then we build commercial products on top of it. Now, I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen evolve in this world is the rise of open core, right? And I think we didn't really view it as open core. And I think we're starting to see some subtle connotations show up when we talk about open core and what does that really mean and how does that engage with open source? And I think one of the, the ways that lots of people interpret open core is to mean that there's an open source core but then the vendor who sponsors that has sort of the sole opportunity to build the enterprise version on top of it. And sometimes this is due to dual licensing. Sometimes this is due to a more restrictive license, like, hey, you can't use this to build server products. Sometimes it just means that, you know, they're going to say no to any sort of, of uh, you know, contributions that conflict with their enterprise product. And what we were doing, and I think we're still, I'm still searching for a term for this and I'm workshopping one, so I'll throw it out there and like this may or may not stick. But I think there's an alternative to this that I would call open extensibility. And so the key with open extensibility is that you build open source products that fundamentally are built to be built upon, right? And so with Sonaboy, for example, we really built that as, you know, there's a bunch of plugins for collecting data and running diagnostics on a cluster, right? And so we could have, you know, we did a, a, a conformance one, but, you know, our plan over time was to be like, oh, we can do a secure, in-depth security scanner. We can do one that's, you know, for XYZ compliance program that can help to make sure that you have things. And we can continue to build on with different modules. So the, the base sort of framework was open source, but the value add, those differential features were commercial. Uh, similarly, when we look at Arc slash Valero, you know, the, the experience that we built open source was all driven by a command line and useful. And like it worked within like say a single cloud vendor, but we were thinking about how could we build a SaaS complement that actually helped to coordinate this across a lot of different clusters and actually move backups between those different clouds. That's a value add using the, you know, the, the open source project as, as a, 
sort of a, a socket that we can plug value into from, from SaaS. And so a lot of the stuff that we were building during the acquisition, we're now seeing come out as product as part of, of VMware. And so we had uh, um, a thing that we were calling Heptio HQ as part of, of you know, we hadn't released that yet. And then that's now what you'll look at and it's changed and mutated and expanded, but now that's what we call Tanzu Mission Control, right? It's really this SaaS product that provides multi-cluster, multi-region management over your entire Kubernetes footprint, regardless of where it's running. And so that's one of the reasons why, like as we joined VMware, it all made a lot of sense because we were able to take a lot of our ideas, a lot of the stuff that was in motion and really continue to do that under the, uh, under the VMware umbrella. So I'd love to, I'd love to take a few minutes and talk a bit about the investor response at Heptio to wanting to release these two open source projects and um, like their response in general to the business model you were trying to chase down. Because I think that's one area where um, there's like pressure on founders who are building using open source to like think through monetization and working with investors and setting expectations. So how did you think about, um, how did you think about that? Well, we never got a ton of pushback from our investors on this. And I think that's part of, you know, if you're doing a company that is based on open source, you want to make sure that your investors understand and are, are going to work with you as you work to find the business model that works and stays true to open source. And I think that, you know, if, if you have one view of this and your investor have another view, you're probably setting yourself up for conflict. And I think, you know, this is, this is I think, a great example of like, you know, just sidebar here, I think this is something I learned with the EIR experience is that a lot of companies, a lot of founders view getting investment as a transactional thing. You have money, I need money, give me some of your money, right? Whereas I think anybody who's been through this before and especially folks on the venture side, it's a long-term relationship. You're gonna have that person sitting on the board, they're gonna be your boss to some degree. You know, It's not exactly an analogy, but like you wanna be careful about picking that person that you're gonna be in a relationship with for quite a while and you wanna be careful about it. And so I think this would be something that I would urge founders to, to really have those frank conversations with investors and just don't follow the best term sheet, but really think about what is it gonna be work, like to work with this person, with this firm for the, for the long haul. Now, that being said, I would also urge folks, and this is what we did, and I think one of the reasons why we didn't get a lot of pushback with this is that we were always very clear from the get-go what our strategies around monetization were. So we didn't start a project until we had a thesis for how we were gonna be able to monetize it. And I think, you know, even if that thesis is unproven, being able to tell that story helps you to understand where the lines are and why, what you're gonna reserve and what you're gonna do and not gonna do. Now, there's always a danger that somebody else, you know, with this open extensibility goes off and builds your value add and they do it in the open or they're competing with you. But to some degree, you're creating a new market that you then have free reign on. And usually you get a first mover advantage on that. And so you have to then, you know, build on top of that to be able to, to make it happen. And you also oftentimes, you know, have um, uh, uh, unique insights into the community too. So you know who's showing up, you know who's playing with it. You can then start to have sidebar conversations on, hey, would you like to talk commercial here on this stuff? And so I think because we had those theories and you know, we, uh, um, we were able to show the engagement of like, hey, people are talking to us, we're having conversations at the right level with the right people. I think that really bought us a, a whole bunch of leeway with our investors in terms of being able to make this stuff work. 
Now, and again, I think some of that was the consulting and training also. So it was a combination of that plus the open source meant that we were able to engage with folks and sign deals that, you know, honestly, at the size and the maturity that we're at, we probably shouldn't have been able to do. But, but you know, it, it really is about building those relationships with your customers to be. So talking about the plan you presented to the VCs and actually executing on sort of like this commercialization or monetization plan, um, what, what was the plan? When, when are you actually going to be monetizing this? Because I feel like the open source right, frameworks was there, right? There's people actually using it, but it didn't feel like you were, before Hepti was acquired, correct me if I'm wrong, it never actually got to the monetization phase. Or... Yeah, I think we started to, um, you know, the first thing is that one of our, um, one of our, our theses coming out the gate was that starting and managing the actual Kubernetes clusters was going to be commoditized. And we still think that's the case, right? And so like, you know, I still think that like, hey, there's going to be folks who, you know, who want to buy Kubernetes from somebody and they want somebody to help them support it. But, you know, it's open source. In modern open source projects, the line between project and product often becomes blurry, right? Nobody buys a Node.js distribution, right? It's not a thing, right? Node.js, the project is kind of a product in and of itself. Now, what you can do is actually partner with companies like, say, SNCC, who will actually help validate your supply chain for all of the you know, dependencies that you're bringing in. And so there, that's a great example of somebody, you know, the, the core project slash product is set and free and commoditized, but there's definitely value to be added around that in terms of, of, of completing the experience and bridging the need of like, okay, what does a startup or a single developer need? Okay, they can go off and do it. They're never gonna pay us any money anyways. When you start running this stuff at scale inside of an enterprise, all of a sudden there's new needs, there's new problems that they face. That's your monetization opportunity out of that. So we assumed getting, getting started that, that you know, uh, running Kubernetes was going to be commoditized. And so we didn't invest in that. And then we found that it didn't happen quite as fast as we thought it would, and it still hasn't happened. So we started doing what we called, you know, the, the Heptio Kubernetes service, HKS, which really, you know, was in some ways a supported open source distribution because that, again, was something that we could start selling in the built relationships. And it was a way for us to, to start adding value. And then our, our, uh, the, the stuff that we were, you know, working actively on at acquisition was, was around SaaS that was going to build a lot of those capabilities on top of, we were assuming people were going to have lots of Kubernetes. They were going to have to manage across lots of Kubernetes. How do we actually provide that as a SaaS platform on top of it? For a company like Heptio, where your initial product is really these two open source projects, what, what does a team look like? How is it different from a regular like SaaS, venture-backed SaaS team? What were the unique capabilities that you needed? Well, I think, you know, with any, and I think, you know, with any open source projects, it's a slow burn. Right. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, like we were lucky enough where the orbit that we were in around Kubernetes, Kubernetes was relatively mature when we started the company. But if you want to start open source and you want to start a company, you have to adjust your expectations in terms of timelines. It just takes time to build that audience and build that community and get going with it. And so I think, you know, early on with these projects, it's really like, okay, within a certain space and level of constraints, let's find product market fit. And I think in that point of view, what you're doing is you're trying to find like, can we solve a problem for developers? And I think open source is an amazing tool to create really tight feedback loops with enthusiastic users, 
right? And I think for any startup, you get a tight feedback loop with an enthusiastic, you know, all of a sudden now you're finding your way through, you're finding your way to value and you're, 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 you're you know, continuing to refine that fit. And so our initial points of view was like, let's find some fit, let's find some users, let's start solving some problems. And then at some point we'll see the problems that they're coming from and we'll be like, ah, that problem feels like a commercializable problem, right? So let's go through and like say, we're not gonna solve that problem in open source, we'll solve that with an extension here, right? And so to some degree, you know, you gotta find that fit, but then you also have to make sure that you sort of leave the, the right interface or build the right interfaces so that you can layer on top your commercial value add. And I think, you know, if somebody's you know coming at you and you're like, hey, I see the problem that you're doing. I see that you know the type of people who are going to have this problem are also the ones who can pay us. Then it's totally reasonable for you to say, okay, let's have that conversation at that level instead of actually keeping it with open source. And so, what are the kind of metrics you track as a company in Heptio? Like, what are the things like we report to our board for, and this is our north star of what we're making progress of a company? Right? Is it the usage of Kubernetes as a whole? plus your tools that you're building, or do you track very specific things that are augmented from those data? I mean, it's tricky. I think, you know, everybody wants to track things like GitHub stars and we all know they're BS, but they're a metric so you can track them. Um, you definitely want to look at, you know, contributors. Are you actually, I think some of this is like, sometimes when you build open source, are you looking to build a contributor uh, community? And I think that's what we did with Kubernetes because we wanted Kubernetes to actually be a rising tide that would lift you know, Google's boat, but also you know, a lot of other boats as things go. There's other techniques that you can take where you're looking to build a user community, but you're not looking to build as much of a contributor community. Right? I think you're gonna measure different things depending on which community you're looking to build and what flywheel you're looking to get started. Now, I think you know, from the contributor point of view, it's like, are people actually using this thing? Um, and that's actually really, really hard to do. Uh, and the reason being is that, you know, a lot of times people will use open source and you have no clue. And I'll still hear people being like, oh, we're using X. And I'm like, I had no clue you were using X. That's crazy, right? That's part of the beauty is people don't have to ask permission to start using this stuff. And, you know, you could think about putting some sort of phone home types of thing in there. That's, you know, you got to be super careful about how you do that because that could alienate your, your uh, user community if you're doing it wrong. And if you're building a, a, a contributing community, you want to make sure that, you know, you're honest with your community about sort of what sources of data and what leg ups do you have from the commercialization point of view that other folks may not, right? So I think a great example would be in Kubernetes. Kubernetes.io, the website. It has Google Analytics. Who, who has access to the Google Analytics dashboard for Kubernetes.io? That may be actually some valuable information that could provide a commercial advantage, right? And so I think part of making Kubernetes be a healthy multi-vendor ecosystem, and I think this is something through the CNCF, we want to make sure that contributors to the community have access to some of that data, but we also want to do it in a way that is not exposing anybody's private information, right? versus saying like, well, Google started the project, so therefore they get, they're the only ones that get access to that, right? So those are the types of things that you need to think about when you're viewing this from a sort of multi-vendor, you know, open governance type of open source project. Whereas if you're more on the lines of like, it's a single vendor product project and you're looking to build a contribute, I mean, a user community, but not a contributing community, well, then it's like, you can keep a lot of this stuff much closer to your vest. Um, and one point I'd like to make here is that, you know, these communities are subtle things. There's, um, 
there's sort of an implicit contract that you make with your community about sort of like, you know, here's the lines that we're going to cross. Here's the lines we don't cross. Here's our relationships. Here's how we monetize. And I always encourage people when it comes to open source to wear their agenda on their sleeve, be very clear about, you know, how you're viewing this, where you're going to reserve this and sort of like what the lines are. And I think we see a lot of companies really get into trouble when they start a project that project sees success. And then they're like, oh crap, we need to monetize. And part of their monetization plan means changing the implicit contract that they have with their community, right? And so this could be changing the license or it could just be like, you know, starting to say no where you said yes before and in and exercising power that you had never exercised before. Um, and it's still open source because the definition of open source is still broad. But what you'll find is that people contributed under one set of assumptions and then you pulled the rug out from under them. And that can be really, really, uh, you know, uh, disruptive to your community if you go ahead and do that. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point that we hear actually from multiple founders, right? That that contract is what they've really tried to maintain at the whole lifetime of the company. And that's actually very, very difficult. Um, and so it relates to that question actually, because you already talked about the multi-vendor, right? Whenever you talk about a successful open source community, there's the company behind it that's that's a venture-backed, usually open source company. And then you have right the, the Googles, Microsoft, Amazons. In this case, you have Red Hat, and you have a lot of different players in this ecosystem. How how did you navigate that as a company? Like, how do you know how to work with the large vendors versus the other vendors? Did you have, I guess, well, trying to understand like what are the challenges? You know, and what is the sort of like the, the, the principles when it comes to like how you engage and how you, you find a balance while you're still trying to maintain a company behind this brand, but not, you know, know how to cooperate yeah. so that we still feel like it's an open ecosystem overall. Well, I think, you know, part of this is just knowing your own mind about what you want. Any negotiation. I mean, there's so many people who go into negotiations without a clear idea of what they want and what's important to them. And that's a good way to, you know, to, you know, have a deal go sideways when you don't know your own mind in terms of what you want, right? And so I think, you know, view this as like, okay, when you're, you know, when you do open source, what are, why are you doing it? What is the value that you're looking to extract? And I think, you know, in the case of, of Google and Kubernetes, our value was we wanted to create an ecosystem that uh, essentially moved something that was owned by a single company, you know, which was, you know, AWS and cloud into something that wasn't owned by anything that we could participate in, which was Kubernetes and the CNCF. And it was very successful in doing that in terms of actually creating, moving some attention away from this thing that we had, you know, a, a long shot at to something where it's like, hey, we're never going to own 100% of it because it is open, but we know that we can still be very successful and we can actually punch above our weight when we're actually dealing with in that point of view. So that was sort of like a ecosystem play, right? And so sometimes you wanna create an ecosystem that you can participate in. That's one like thing that you can wanna get out of it. Sometimes you wanna get a lot of users and then you wanna be able to, you know, you have a very much more straightforward point of view, right? Where it's just, hey, I wanna view this as maybe a, uh, a sort of a lead generation mechanism. I'm using open source so that people can start using it. And then I have a very clear view around sort of like, okay, you're getting value out of that. If you want to take it to the next level, here's the product that I can sell you, right? And I think there's like, there's different reasons why people do open source. And I think that helps you to understand 
where your lines are, what, you know, where you can do a deal with a big company if it makes sense, or you can cooperate and it'll be a win-win for everybody. Uh, but if you don't have that theory, if you don't know your own mind, you're, you're probably going to, you know, start chasing users at the expense of your business, which I think is a failure mode. Or you're going to say, hey, it's a big name. What could go wrong? And like, so you need to make sure that you understand, you know, what you want out of the deal and, and when, why you're doing what you're doing. I wanted to make sure that we had some time to talk about advice for project owners or early stage company founders. And you're kind of in a unique position where you've been both a founder, but then you've had kind of multiple experiences scaling massive open source projects. So how would you, first question would be, what areas do you think are, make good areas for open source projects to get built? And, and what don't, like, what are the characteristics? And, um, and then, yeah, I've got more questions after that. We can start there. Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about what projects don't go well, do well, right? And I think infrequently used things that are further away from infrastructure and developers, like, I don't know, probably somebody has started an open source, you know, US tax preparation project, but like nobody uses it. And I don't think that's a good candidate, right? Because the liability there and the user base it just doesn't line up. So there's no open source TurboTax, right? So clearly we can anchor saying that's not it. Um, on the other hand though, it's like we're at the point now where it's hard to find a compiler that isn't open source, right? And so, um, you know, so there's a couple of things that I think come out of here is that like, it's very, very difficult to make money directly off of developers, right? I think it's possible, but it's hard to do. Um, and, you know, just because, you know, a developer would rather write code than, you know, even if it's like adapting a crappy open source thing that barely works, then navigate their company in terms of how to actually, you know, create a purchase order and buy something, right? It's like, it turns out it's probably easier to write the damn thing yourself than it is to figure out how to purchase, right? So I think a lot of times what we see is that open source grows up around the folks who, you know, who are in that mode where, Code is definitely something that feels fungible, feels approachable. You know, the, 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 the mystique and the magic is gone around code, right? Whereas I think when you're talking about consumers, it's much less likely that open source is going to be successful there. And then I think as you look across the enterprise, the further away you get from the, the actual practitioners, I think the more monetizable things are and the less likely it is that you're going to see open source projects. And, um, and even if you do see open source projects, you're going to see that, you know, the, 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 the contributing community there is relatively small uh, because, again, it's not a bunch of developers scratching their itch. And so you don't create that sort of grassroots bottom up motion out of it. So I think that's kind of my rule of thumb there. And I think, you know, to some of it is, is hey, if you, can, if you can create this thesis of where we're going to make money and where we're going to find a user base or a contributor base, then you're off to the races. Um, I just think like you have to be honest of like, will I find a user base for this? And will it actually be something that I can that I can create a monetization motion around? Awesome. And then, yeah, I think the last question we wanted to finish on is advice for early founders or project owners thinking about starting a company. I think be patient. I think, like I said earlier, it's a it's a slow burn. It takes time to build the the um, build that community. Uh, I think number two is, um, you know, uh, really come up with that thesis of how you want to monetize and understand where your limits are. And you're not stuck with that for life. You can reevaluate it. You can change it. You can learn. But I think always be thinking like, you know, you know, 
one, one, you know, what is your open source maintainer hat? And then what is your startup founder business hat? And like, you gotta always be wearing both of those hats. And I think in general, one of my theories is that you get senior enough in any role, whether it be product management or engineering or marketing or sales, everybody at that point really does a little bit of everything, right? We all have to be generalists as we, you know, and at the end of the end of the day, we're all business people even though we may have different titles. And so make sure that you don't lose sight of that business person hat as you get caught up. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, they get so excited about their open source project. They just, you know, like, okay, in consumer world, if you can get a hundred million people to download your app or do anything, you can monetize it. That doesn't, that same motion doesn't work with developers. You can get every developer in the world to actually start using your stuff. You're not going to sell advertising and it's not clear that you're going to have a path to monetization. And so I think, you know, the, the instincts that you might've honed in other spaces, like the consumer app space, don't necessarily apply to the enterprise space. And I, so I think, and don't necessarily apply to the developer focused open source space either. So, you know, knowing when the, the patterns of the past don't apply is also, I think, something that's really important. And so one last question, I think very specific about Kubernetes. Uh, any advice for any Kubernetes related founder or startup that still want to do something in this space at all? Yeah, I mean, so my advice to folks around this right now is that we're seeing a level of consolidation around Kubernetes. And I think we're starting to see new markets emerge that um, are using Kubernetes as a, uh, as a basis to create a multi-cloud sort of meta-cloud type of experience on top of it. And I think that's one way to look at what we're doing with Tanzu. It's another way to look at, say, what Google and Microsoft and to some degree Amazon are doing, what Red Hat's doing. And so we're starting to see consolidation where a lot of what folks would have been viewing as a feature of Kubernetes or a product in the Kubernetes space now is now a feature of one of these larger platforms. And so I think, you know, be very careful that you're not going to get run over by building a feature, you know, by building something that is really a feature of a larger product as we see the consolidation and the, and the, the, the maturity that's coming here. Now, that being said, I think, you know, my advice to both founders and, and, and venture folks looking to invest here is that you know, what are the things that people can do now that we start having things like Kubernetes emerge that were never possible before, right? What does Kubernetes enable uh, in terms of building new businesses that we weren't able to do before, right? And I think the same thing with cloud, right? It's at one point to get started, you had to get colo space and actually buy a bunch of machines and manage your own networks and all that. Now you go to cloud and cloud enables a whole host of business models and companies that weren't really empowered or enabled before. I think we're going to see similar stuff with Kubernetes with some of the patterns and the tools that we have here. And that's where I think the opportunity is to build up and around Kubernetes versus actually building directly to the Kubernetes ecosystem. But I could be wrong. I mean, don't listen to me again. I'm an N of one. So like if you have a great idea and you have a plan, go for it. Right. Amazing things can be done by people who don't know what they're doing is impossible. I love that. That's a great quote to end on. Um, well, this is super fun and um, we really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, anytime. Glad to, glad to be on.